Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. If you will go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word with me and turn to Luke's Gospel, we're going to continue in our study of Christ's ministry. And I realize that because of the past couple of weeks that we've kind of diverted off so that we could take a focused look in on His passion and His resurrection. But there's one thing that i really like for us to take a look at, and that's the more intricate uh, details of the grace of Christ. The love of God is shown to us through Christ. And what, if we're not careful, the pitfalls, the traps, the landmines that the enemy has put in the way, in our way, that can harbor in our hearts if we're not careful. The temptations to take that grace and add to that grace. As we see with the Pharisees of old, there is a trap, a mine in our way of legalism. Legalism is basically the denial of the completed work of grace in Christ, adding to it, adding requirements to Him, that the sacrifice, that the cross wasn't enough, that we have to do something else, that we have to climb the mountain that He's climbed for us, that we have to provide something else because the sacrifice of Jesus did not do the job. Effectively calling the last word that He ever spoke before His, uh, before his burial, the word to tell us, die a lie. So we want to take a look at why that is a trap, why it's been put in our place, and why it's something that we need to fiercely avoid. And the, uh, the story of one particularly important part of, of this truth comes to us from Luke chapter 6. So if you would, take out your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 1. And... Just by way of review, Jesus is talking here about the purpose behind the Sabbath. This is an example of something that we have that is outside of the human nature. Human nature says that we need to work ourselves to death in order to gain riches, that we have to basically grind ourselves against the millstone until we are, are no longer able to function, that we require riches, that we require stuff, that we require prestige in order to make ourselves feel safe. But God put in place a gift for each and every one of us, the gift of the Sabbath. So, beginning with verse 1, we read together. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in her, their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? The more literal translation of that word is starving. Verse 4, he entered into the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, the showbread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is 
the Lord of the Sabbath. Anyone who claims that Jesus never claimed to be God has obviously never read the gospel because there it sits. When God created all that exists, He took time on the seventh day of the week to rest, to set a pattern, an example, consecrating and instituting the Sabbath day from the very beginning of creation itself. Something that was later practiced by Enoch, by Abraham, by a lot of people in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the book of Genesis, before it finally became law in the book of Exodus. This was something that was known, culturally speaking, before the time that Israel became a nation. Because the Creator set it up for us. Now again, this is against human nature. Our nature, our fallen nature says that we need to work ourselves to death in order to feel secure. But God says that we need to take time for two reasons. Number one, we need to take time to spend with Him, with our Creator, with the author and perfecter of our faith, but also that you as a human being are finite. You need rest. You need a period in your life where you can sit back, enjoy time with the Heavenly Father, enjoy time with the families that God has given you, and take time to recharge. For without that... We grow stressed, we grow despondent, ultimately we grow uh, unhealthy. It's not to say that we have a poor work ethic that, said, that says that the person who creates you knows you. and knows what you need in order to be able to function. But continuing on, verse 6. And then on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They were sitting in the synagogue in wait. They were setting themselves up as spies of the temple authority to see Jesus, to catch Jesus in the act of doing something that they consider unlawful so that they could pounce on him. In other words, so that they could find a reason to have him arrested and, ultra, and, and either discredited or ultimately killed. Well, let's move on. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. How despicable. Setting up a trap in the house of God. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand up in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it, not to kill necessarily. There are more ways to destroy somebody than to, to, to murder them. To create a scene by which somebody's ministry can come to an end through artificial means. Character assassination. Verse 10. He looked around at them and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now let's take a look back just a second and see both scenes. Now in the book of Deuteronomy... Part of the law of God over Israel was that if someone was traveling through Judea, if someone was traveling through the land, 
than anyone who was on the way from one place to another and uh, was and lost their provision for the entire way uh, could stop by a field where somebody was growing something and take what they needed to survive. This was established in the book of Deuteronomy. Again, there were no service stations back in that day. There were no places of respite necessarily on those long and winding roads. So part of the law of God, the law of hospitality, even in the Old Testament, has a thread of grace running through it. In that those who had this land to farm were commanded to set some of that aside so that as travelers went sojourning in the way, they were allowed to pick a little bit of what they needed to survive. Now, we've talked about the law of God is established in the Old Testament, over 630 commandments in the five books of Moses alone. But what Jesus, in his day, as the Pharisees came to power, they developed commentaries on those 600 and something laws. And in today's culture, we scratch our heads at that, and we kind of wag our fingers and say, gee, that's awfully legalistic. 600-something laws that you have to memorize and live by. But I want you to think about the nation in which we live for just a second, the society in which we live. Everybody in that culture was expected to have memorized all of the law of Israel, all five books of Moses. The Pharisees, on the other hand, created over a thousand more as a commentary. So even though this particular type of hospitality was provided for in the book of Deuteronomy, effectively under the Pharisees imposing their own law over top of the law of God, the disciples became guilty when they picked the heads of barley, of gleaning, of rubbing and threshing, in a preparing food. So three different sins that you were not supposed to commit on the Sabbath day in their eyes. So when they're walking through the field, when they're going from place to place, again, Jesus was an itinerant rabbi, what we would call an evangelist. His disciples did what they were supposed to do according to the law. And the Pharisees, who'd been watching them for an opportunity to take them down, started, as as the disciples were picking barley, the Pharisees were picking nits. And they accused them of breaking the law of God which was not the law of God, it was their law. The traditions of men, as we've been warned against in the writings of the Apostle Paul. So when they started wagging their fingers at Christ, he asked them flat out, do you not know the word of God? Do you not know this episode where David was sojourning with his his friends? When he was on the hunt from a dying regime, from the regime of, of, the, of, the, of King Saul, when he was fleeing, when he was a refugee in his own land, he came across the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, he came across the tabernacle of God, and he asked the priests for provision because his men are literally starving. So Jesus is asking them, which is it lawful to do? Allow your people to die or to work? so that they may yet live. Puts them in a corner thereby. And this is recorded in the Word of God. This is recorded in 1 Samuel. So they took the sacred bread, and in a show of grace, the priests of those early days took the sacred bread and gave it to David, the anointed of God, 
and his friends to eat to save their lives. The Pharisees would have condemned them, but those priests, at least at that time, understood this concept of grace. And in this second pericope, in this second episode, we see that Jesus is doing his custom. He's, he's performing the work of the teacher. He's in the synagogue. And as part of the crowd, there was a man who had a shriveled hand, palsied hand. So the Pharisees who had planted themselves as an aggressor in that congregation were waiting for Jesus to do something about it. They thought of this as a temptation. They planted a trap in the house of God for the worker of God to mess up. So Jesus asks them in this teachable moment, which is right, you who are the keepers of the law, which is right to save someone's life or to destroy? Do you allow suffering? He who knows what is right to do and does it not, to that person it is reckoned as sin. So Jesus is confronting them. You're hiding laziness behind the law. You're hiding anger and persecution and veiling it in a robe of righteousness that it does not deserve. But to satisfy them, he tells the man, stretch forth your hand. He, he is healed. There's a demonstration of God's healing power there and then. But he didn't fall into the trap. Instead, he made the makers of the trap look foolish. What I want us in this season where we concentrate on God's grace and God's love, I want us to realize what legalism is and is not. Again, this is a trap that the enemy sets in our path to make the free gift of grace unpalatable. So many people that we've tried to minister to, so many people in this very community that we've tried to ask to come to church or at least tried to offer support to, counsel to, say that they can't attend a service because they don't feel like they're worthy enough to attend a service. Or they're afraid that if they come into the house of God, they will have to be, or they will be forced to change something. When the truth of the matter is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that none are righteous, no, not one, that we are to be not conformed to the way of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are not the person that transforms ourselves. That is the lie. We are not the person that transforms ourselves. When we come into a free pardon of, 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 of sin, when we come into the loving embrace of the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, who empowers us, who, who transforms us from the inside, it is a work of God. It is a work of love that changes who we are, that changes our wants and desires, that changes the very nature of our standing before our Creator by giving us a personal, close, and intimate relationship with Him. So it's not that we have to work to become saved. It is not that we have to work to stay saved. It is that we work because we have been saved. It is an expression of thanksgiving. It is an expression of hope. It is a life that is lived in imitation of the God who loves us. So what legalism is not, to the friends and neighbors who are hopefully listening to this message, legalism is not a biblical principle for daily living. Legalism is not 
the ethics of God's Word. When we say legalism, that's not what we're talking about. Legalism is not the resistance to sinful influences. This is all obedience. This is the person that we become after we have been saved. This is the person that Jesus, through His sacrifice, helps us to become. Legalism is not personal acts of devotion, but on the very contrary, legalism is the tendency of some who claim themselves to be believers, Jews that are not, as recorded in the pen of the, the, the gospel writer John and also his book of Revelation. Legalism is a denial of the completed work of grace and therefore is heresy. Legalism is adding to the ethics of Scripture. Not just trying to live them out, but throwing more over top of it. A millstone around your neck. Legalism is adding to the commandments of Christ. Putting something in place. I know of churches, reluctantly, that claim to be Baptists that are trying to force themselves to again become Puritan. That are trying to go back to a works-based righteousness. For those of you that don't know, a Puritan, by definition, is someone who lives in a continuous fear that somewhere, at some point in time, someone is enjoying themselves. It is the epitome of works-based righteousness. It is a lifestyle that the Baptist faith was born out of because we realized that that was a lie. That the same God who in His Word wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say... Rejoice could not possibly have meant that we have to add these thousands and thousands of our own rules on top of the law of God, on top of what we have been changed to be. For if you are a Christian, you don't have to, well, you have to study them, but you don't have to live in a constant slavery to checkboxes because the law of God is no longer written on the pages of a book, but written where? In your heart. Now we come together, please don't, don't think that I'm telling you that being Christian is, is a free blank check to sin. It is not. Being a Christian is a transforming experience where your very nature as a person, as a living being, has been changed so that instead of sin being the rule, sin becomes the exception. If you have been transformed by the renewing of your mind, sin is the occasional slip it is still an act of disobedience, one that we have to freely admit and, and repent of. But it ceases to be the law. It ceases to be the rule shackling our lives. Legalism is also making preferences into doctrines. I actually had a conversation with a good friend of mine um, who is a proponent of the King James Only Movement. And I won't debate that in the course of this message because it would take a whole series of messages, to be honest with you. But he actually posted that, and I'm not kidding when I say this, the wording was the KJV is superior to the originals. Did you catch that? So, so in other words, by the pure wording of that post, by the pure wording of his argument, what the apostles penned wasn't good enough. What the prophets wrote down wasn't good enough. It took all the way up to 1611 
For someone by the name of James, incidentally, the brother of Jesus was not really named James. He was named Jacob. James is a Scottish name, but it probably didn't help the propaganda, didn't hurt the propaganda circles. In. But in other words, the, the original authors weren't good enough. The monks who lived to copy things and who checked them letter by letter, word by word, phrase by page, phrase by phrase, page by page, that wasn't good enough. Now, there are some, some manuscripts that I do have a bit of a, a story exception with. I won't quibble about that. But to say that, that this one translation of the Word of God is the only way that you can be saved is adding a legalistic millstone around the neck of Christianity. Well, that makes no sense. But going on. Making preferences into doctrines. I, I was fortunate enough to minister, as you all know, in a place in, in Clendenin. Uh, <laughs> getting on five years now, I think. Five years ago. Um, that told me when I first got there that they would only use the King James from the pulpit. And, and I was taken aback by that because I was afraid it was kind of that Thing, but they were kind enough to tell me, no, this is just, this is the translation we grew up with. It's the one we memorized from. It's the one that we prefer because it's the one that we, we know best, which is similar to the way that I grew The church that I grew up, that was the Bible that we used. That was the translation we were used to when we did Bible memory, Bible drills. That's what we had. In fact, to this day, if I list a verse, off the top of my head, you'll notice that that's the translation that I default to. What I'm trying to say there is legalism can be interpreted when we take our own personal preferences and we try to build a doctrine out of them. There's only one way by which you may be saved. And it doesn't matter. The Bible translation, as long as it holds to this. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. Those are the qualifiers that the Apostle Paul gives to us. He doesn't lay anything else over top of that. If you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, God has raised him from the dead, confess it with your mouth, you will be saved. Anyway, working as a means to earn grace is another one that is common with many denominations who, who proclaim that when you do something wrong, you have to balance the scales. The scales have been balanced for you. Back in this time period, sins were thought of as debts to society, debts to God. There was actually, in Roman society, there was a monetary value that was placed on every crime committed. And this is what, the, what Jesus is picking up on when he says to Telestai. To Telestai from the cross that we often hear translated as it is finished, more aptly is translated paid in, in full. God paid your debt on the cross. Your work, the work of, of, of sin's atonement was completed once and for all, past, present, and future. Christ paid a debt he did not owe. He paid my debt. He paid your debt. 
Every time that we have ever committed a sin, every time that we think back to the sorrow, to the, to the heartache, to the times that we should be ashamed of ourselves, we have to remember that we don't have to be paralyzed by that anymore because the debt has been paid, the forgiveness has been offered, the grace has been extended. You are free because somebody paid that for you. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice because you have so much. We have so much to be thankful for. Another one that we can talk about there is forcing personal preferences on others. Some of us are givers. Some of us are workers. Some of us are disciplers. Some of us are mentors. Not all of us are gifted in the same way. Not all of us perform the same functions in the body of Christ as the others. So to try to force somebody else to be in your image is denying them the individuality that God put into making them. God has created some wonderful hospitality people in this church, some wonderful finance minds, some wonderful administrators, some wonderful visionaries, some wonderful go-getters when it comes to, to leading others in worship and to drawing others into the family of God. Don't force somebody else to be made in your image because trust me, the person that God made is the person he intended to make. Now we can help that person along. We can help to show them, but not force. Encourage, but not dominate. Moving on. Lastly, this is what the Pharisees themselves were trying to do. Calling attention to oneself for the sake of pride. Calling to attention to oneself for the sake of pride. Putting your piety on display. This is what Jesus warns us about when in the Sermon on the Mount, he proclaims that when you pray, seek out privacy. Go into your prayer closets. Shut the door so that your Father who hears you in private will also reward you. But for the Pharisees that make these long-winded prayers and these long-winded speeches, they're not praying to God. They're praying for the crowd so that they can hear them and think, oh, what a wonderful person this is. What wonderful education that they have. What wonderful and beautiful words that they use. In other words, the Pharisee who's praying that kind of prayer has lost the point. The same way with someone who reaches into their wallet for the sake of tithe and they pull out a giant wad of bills and throw it and make sure that everybody sees it. They've earned their reward. Now that's not to say that tithing isn't important. In fact, it's vital. Understanding that everything that we have truly belongs to God and that God wants us to be engaged in the work of generosity. That's not the point of what Jesus is saying. He says, still give but never let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Don't make a show of your piety, but be pious. Don't go to an extreme to let everybody know how good of a person you are. But do that good work and do it joyfully and thankfully because God smiles on it. Galatians chapter 6. Paul teaches this for us. Those who want to impress people by the means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. He's talking about the legalists of his day, which are the, Jude which are the Judaizers. People who believe that before you can become a Christian, you have to go through all the steps of being Jewish first. 
And he links that with people who are trying to be impressive. Look at me. Look at how great I am. I submitted myself to circumcision. I keep the fasts. I keep uh, doing all the things that the law requires. How good of a person I am. Paul is writing through the, through the, the supervision of the Holy Spirit that this person has missed the point. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision or uncircumcision works do not mean anything if they're done for the wrong reason. What counts is the new creation. Like so many things that Jesus talked about when he was talking uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not about what you do nearly as much as the condition of your heart when you do it. The intentionality behind why you do what you do is far and away more important to God than the actual thing that is being accomplished. I'll really quickly go through this, and we've already touched on it. Um, but Sabbath is also important while we're here on the subject. We're lucky as Christians in North America because we don't have a single day weekend, we have a two day weekend. One of the benefits from our past of, of actually having some. Um, good old New England Puritanism, is that the Sabbath was still considered sacred. Now they went to a, a, a really long extent with it. If any of you have ever read Johnny Tremaine, you know that if you were caught doing something on the Sabbath back in Puritan times in North America, you were harshly and severely punished for it. But let's take a look at that really quickly. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vest away. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Does this mean that God didn't have power to keep going? No. This was God as is his custom. This is God setting up an example for us. Then God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy because he rested from all the work of creating everything that he had done. So he's providing for us a means to recharge, to rejuvenate, to rest, to grow stronger, and also to seek deliberately time with Him. This is also how Jesus um, defended Himself, same time in His life, but from a different uh, gospel writer's eyes. He answered, Have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered into the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. He also gave it to some of his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath, this is the part that I want you to recognize in this particular gospel. The Sabbath was made for who? Man, for you, for your sake. The Sabbath is a time for us to celebrate God. The Sabbath is a time for us to recharge. The Sabbath is a time for us to go boldly before the throne of grace because the person who's sitting on it is our Heavenly Father, our Dad, Abba, Father, someone who wants an intimate relationship with us. 
It is not good enough for us to just come together once a week, claim that we have been uh, in His presence, and then forget about Him the rest of the, the other six days of the week. Take the entire day. My advice, remember that God instituted the Sabbath for the sake of you as a means of self-care. Now again, we have a Sabbath day in this culture and we have the Lord's Day, which is today. A day of rest and personal communion, then a day that we come together and corporately worship and we teach and we learn. If you work on Saturday, please find at least one other day that you can take time and spend that time with your family. Please take an opportunity to reach out in prayer and open your Bible by yourself and see what it has in store for you. Take one day to be with those that you love and to share your relationship with God, with them as well. This is how John the Apostle puts it. The same John who's John the Revelator. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands, his commands. Not the commands of others that have been imposed upon you. Not the commands that are the checklists that some pastors provide but by living out the transformation that has been done within your heart that is echoed in His Scriptures. In fact, this is the love for God to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. Please highlight that. Put Christmas tree lights around it. Underline it. Make sure that you know it, because one of the things that your soul can tell you about when something is considered legalistic and is not is when it becomes more than you can bear. The commandments of God is written on your heart because you have been regenerated and are a new person in His image are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our works, does it say? Even our piety, does it say? So what is the secret ingredient that, 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 that John is telling us is what overcomes the world? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. This is the Apostle Paul. What we are is plain to God, and I hope that it is also plain to you in your conscience. What we are trying to command, commend ourselves to you again, but we are not giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died, and that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and to be raised again. I cannot tell you the number of times that I've heard the excuse, 
I can't go to church because those people hate me. I can't go back to that place because of what they said about me behind my back. I can't go and take part in morning worship anymore because they're going to look down on me. They're going to demand of me. They're going to put something else on me. They're going to force me to do something. They're going to want me to fit in. They're going to abuse me if I don't. The sad thing is a lot of that testimony comes from fellow pastors. Legalism is something that the enemy puts in the way of the believer. Something that causes panic, heartache, and a lack of love for God. It harbors within our hearts the love that we should be reflecting back to our Creator. If there is something on you, something that's on any of us, something that is required beyond what the Scripture tells us, beyond what is written on the hearts of those that believe, then it needs to be examined and called out for what it really is. No one should ever have to enter the house of God in fear. No one should ever approach the altar of forgiveness in apprehension. No one who earnestly needs prayer or a special touch of the Master's hand should ever have to worry about what other people think of them for going down the aisle. If that's what God has laid on someone's heart to do, that's what they need to do. That's between them and God, no one else. Whatever it is that has been done for us on behalf of God, either the crucifixion, the common graces that we hear each and every day, whatever it is, please know that there's nothing else that you can do to earn it. What is the definition of grace if it is not the unearned love of God? We don't work to obtain grace. We work out of celebration for the fact that we have already received it. It is the free gift of God. It costs nothing except a willingness to be transformed. And all God's people said, Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, please examine our hearts as we lift them up to you. Grant us a heart that is not labored with checklists, but is filled with your love. A heart that is not shackled by legalism, but one overflowing with grace. One that recognizes you for the wonderful work that you have done for us. And Lord, as we lift our voices in praise, as we seek to be sources of comfort and hope, teaching, proclaiming your gospel to others. Let us do it without adding anything on to the work that you have accomplished. Let us do it boldly, but in the right and sober mind that is granted to us through the Holy Spirit. Let us not seek to glorify ourselves, but in everything that we do, bring glory to you to point and to highlight the Christ who loves us so. And if there is any within the sound of my voice that has yet to come to know you, in a free pardon of sin or one uh, who, for whom the grace of God, for whom uh, the joy that they should have 
has been worn down by, the, by this world and all of its, its burdens. Lord, let that person come to your table now to receive your embrace, to receive the energy and encouragement they need. For any, uh, Lord, that just need a special touch of your hand to know that they are heard as they lift their voices to you in prayer. Let them come as well. Whatever the need is on any heart, Lord, as we transition now to the time of invitation, whatever the need is, what a fantastic day to be the day of someone's salvation. What a wonderful day for someone who needs your love to receive it. What a wonderful day for someone to know that their burden is also your burden and that you will take their concern and you will change it in such a way that they will receive your good and you will receive all the glory. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. All God's people said. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.